The production of this podcast was made possible by a grant from the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the interviewees and do not necessarily represent the official views of the Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families, or those of the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. Taslahen inim lautiwa, inim winitwas atitwatit, inwas nimipu ayat, soyapo Ty Simpson. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I am Ty Simpson, and I am a social change advocate at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. At the Coalition, we hosted a short series of podcasts to intentionally center the work of Indigenous leaders and tribal community members as their work and experience relates to domestic violence victim service provision. The creation of this podcast grew from our participation working with a Family Violence Prevention Services grant. Our role was to facilitate connections with three tribal nations and one urban indigenous community to understand how these communities are impacted by domestic violence. Podcasting is an avenue of storytelling, and storytelling is an important cultural dynamic for many indigenous people. Upon reflecting on what tools and resources would best serve and represent the indigenous community in Idaho, we made the decision to pivot from a print campaign to podcast. The interview questions are based on the goals and objectives of the Idaho Thriving Families Work Plan, as well as from input from Tribal Site Victim Service Program directors. These are Coeur d'Alene Tribe Stop Violence Program, directed by Bernie Lasar. Who we interview in a future episode. Nez Perce Tribe, Uyit Kimti, New Beginnings Program, directed by Carrie Picard, and the Shoshone Tribes and the Shoshone Bannock Tribes Victim Assistance Program, directed by Audrey Jim. The interview participants were recommended by each of the tribal site coordinators or other service providers in those communities. The series of questions specifically address experiences by each interviewee. In addition, the questions incorporate the themes from the listening sessions conducted in year three of the Thriving Families Grant. I'll outline the connection between the themes and the guest as we move along the series. Lastly, the questions were also organically augmented to allow the conversation to move along freely. Our aim as part of the grant and within the podcast was to address the following goals. Improve systems and responses to abused parents and their children from underserved populations through the integration of a comprehensive anti-oppression and social equity framework to achieve positive change in state governmental systems that impact abused parents and their children exposed to domestic violence. Build capacity of the demonstration sites and statewide service providers to better serve parents and children impacted by domestic violence. And enhance evidence and practice-informed strategies, advocacy, and interventions for children and youth from underserved communities exposed to domestic violence. I'd like to explore a bit of background for you. While well-intentioned, this project had some harmful consequences and produced some important conversations to be had by the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence Team. We had to ask ourselves, how do we carry out grant work that is in partnership with tribal communities? What were the problems faced in our project? How do we make changes for future collaboration with tribes? The methodology we used was initially harmful. The questions used in the listening sessions were also harmful. And we didn't build a safe or secure place to engage in these conversations, nor did we provide aftercare. We are learning in our work that we don't invest in the storied connections and experiences of our people to inform best practices. We talk a lot about evidence and practice-informed strategies without engaging the voices of folks most impacted by violence. Your stories are valuable.
My name is Kildir. I'm Nespers, Lummi, and Tulalip, and I live in Coldesac, Idaho. I have three daughters and a husband and a house. <laughs> You heard the voice of Augustina Arthur Oatman. I asked her to participate because of her enrollment status. It causes obstacles to service access, not just violence intervention, but health care across the board. From our listening sessions last year, we heard four themes. Understanding sovereignty and jurisdiction, our advocates as matriarchs, elders as mentors, and access to ceremony. Augie's story touches on all of those themes in a sobering and deeply powerful way. From what I know of you, sis, you're not enrolled based on BIA standards in either the Lummi Nation or the Nez Perce Nation? I'm not. <laughs> blood quantum for the Nez Perce. I am one thirty-second short of being one quarter Nez Perce. And it's because I have some flathead blood in my uh, family tree. NPR's Kat Chow describes blood quantum as follows. If you're Native American, there's a good chance that you've thought a lot about blood quantum, a highly controversial measurement of the amount of Indian blood you have. It can affect your identity, your relationships, and whether or not you or your children may become a citizen of your tribe. Blood quantum was initially a system that the federal government placed onto tribes in an effort to limit their citizenship. Many Native nations still use it as part of their citizenship requirements. I mean, just in hearing you, that's a struggle. When we talk about sovereignty, what does that mean? Is it attached to these tribes or is it attached to being indigenous in general? There are a lot of us in the community who know you are as much a part of our people, whether you have an enrollment card or not. I always get people asking me for votes or, Augie, when are you going to run for NEPTIC? (laughs) (laughs) Augie for NEPTIC. (laughs) I mean, all jokes aside, it does kind of hurt you know, to not have that say. My experiences as a person, I know that like this is home. I know that this is where I belong because I have vivid dreams, foretelling dreams like my ancestors did. And I feel like I feel the earth for real. It's hard to explain, but it's like a vibration and it gets really strong sometimes. context to Augie's interview, many indigenous nations ground our indigeneity on our connection to land and to our spiritual ceremonies. Augie refers a bit to one facet of Nimipu or Nez Perce spirituality called dreamers. Part of that practice is to rely heavily on our dreams to influence us every day. I want to connect the spiritual context with our theme of ceremony, access to elders, and sovereignty. She mentions feeling a bit displaced in one of her dreams, which may be the pain of unenrollment manifesting a bit. Do you see yourself going anywhere else ever? Like in those, in that foretelling? I do. (laughs) Actually, I do. I recently had a dream about a baby boy. (laughs) He was mine, I'm certain of it. And I had him wrapped up in this beautiful blanket. And I was taking him to these elders to like introduce him like and ask for a name. (laughs) And I don't know where I was. It didn't feel like Nimipu country? I didn't recognize anybody and it was different. <laughs> it felt different. How influential are those dreams for you on on like the decisions you make on a day-to-day basis? They're actually pretty major. It's how I decide 
someone means something to me, something important. Have they ever been foretelling about whether somebody is dangerous or not, whether somebody else is good for you or not? I think so. It's hard to think back on dreams sometimes because they are so, so vivid, like suffocating. And it's so telling of the time frame that I had those dreams. In these listening sessions, we hosted them at the Nez Perce tribe, up at the Coeur d'Alene tribe, and then down in Shoshone Bannock tribe. Like the themes that came out of those listening sessions, and then another was about elders, and then another was about access to ceremony. And this is all feedback from folks who have experienced domestic violence, right? Predominantly women, some young folks. But it's interesting to me, like when we need help, who we go to first. Who are the matriarchs? Where do we go? Do we go to a victim service provider first or do we go sweat first, right? Do we, and I think that's really telling. I mean, do you have any experiences that would illustrate how important ceremony and matriarchy is to us? Yeah, actually having this house and my husband built a sweat house during the quarantine time. He was working split shifts with another Neptic member on his off days him and his stepdad built our sweat house it was a garden before and now it's a sweat house so i'm gonna call it the garden sweat (laughs) 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 it's where things grow Again, some Nimipu to token or Nez Perce people still practice the use of sweat houses every day for both physical and spiritual cleansing, as well as for prayer. The practice is thousands of years old. My younger girls haven't really gone sweat the way Monroe has, my oldest daughter. She went sweat for the first time when she was like six or seven months old. And she's always been a, a good prayer when she's in sweat and I always get good feedback from the katsas and alats that we sweat with and they're always so thankful for her prayers because they can feel how strong they are. For Mother's Day, all three of my girls sweat with me and the younger two have been really scared. But since Mother's Day, we've had sweat a few times and this week I've been feeling really heavy. There's a lot going on and we've had sweat a lot. And I'm back to work now, and I was laying on my bed thinking, oh, I should just go to sleep. Like, I can skip sweat tonight. And then Jimmy Rose, my second daughter, she came in with her towel around her neck and was like, Mom, are you going to come sweat? And looked at me like, what are you doing laying there? (laughs) (laughs) We have prayers, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) And so so I I was like, of course I'm coming and jumped up and it's just nice to like feel their love and they want me to go to sweat because they know that it makes me feel better and they like to sweat with me (laughs) and they like to sweat hot. (laughs) I'm just thankful to be able to teach them those things. Sharing sweat with her daughters is a powerful example of matriarchy shared prayers between generations and teaching the deeply meaningful way to connect. I always remember going sweat with my katsa and the stories all of the katsats and aunties would tell while we were there and the the feeling of safety, right? I mean, it's a closed quarter space because we were, were one of the tribes that sweat naked. I guess not all tribes sweat naked. That's, you know, I learned that. I know. <laughs> so, co-ed, co-ed clothed sweat. So strange to me. <laughs> right? And I think that that level of safety is 
unmatched. I've never felt home or safe in the way that I do at Sweat. During another segment of our conversation, Augie talked about how her self-care and wellness were important to her, especially because she has daughters. Another example of matriarchy. One of my big things working on my mental health, like I'm doing it not just for me, like I have girls, I have children. I need to be able to teach them how to seek help if they need it. To reiterate, access to ceremony is a huge theme that emerged from our listening sessions last year. Victim service provision is based on Western white settler colonial practices that remove us from our indigeneity. Many of our listening sessions, participants mentioned needing ceremony to start their healing process or to even navigate their crisis. In processing and assessment forms are the antithesis to supporting indigenous families in crisis. It's really a circle of everybody that sweat the same sweat house together that's really what it is that's your circle <laughs> and i love how there's always like you can't just invite yourself to somebody else's sweat in it you have to like be invited be invited <laughs> extended the invitation yeah i always yeah. thought that was fascinating i didn't ever understand that when i was younger but i get it now right like it's not that you're being pretentious about the sweat you're protecting the energy right and the and the safety of that circle yeah. Sweat is one of those practices I really wish could be integrated everywhere in all of the domestic violence shelters, juvenile detention facilities, at correctional facilities, mental health facilities. Like that's the Oh my gosh. Mental like, health facilities. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the things I really, really, really longed for. Like I just wanted someone to sing for me. I wanted someone to pray for me. Like when I had my breakdown last year. That was a hard time. It's hard, hard looking back at it. Augie and I chat about Monroe. Monroe is my brother's youngest daughter. Augie and I are sisters now in our Nimi Pukinship model. She's the mother of my niece and I honor her and love her in a deep familial way. In our community, elders are revered for their service, wisdom, and big love. They model all of our best cultural and spiritual practices. From time to time, an elder emerges as a tiny human, which is how Monroe is often described by her grandparents. She's an old soul, as the adage goes. She's fearless and selfless and wise. I remember Monroe feeling kind of helpless. She could feel it. She knew. She didn't know how to put words to it for you, though. She's always... She's always been, like, right there with me, like, through the worst of it. A tiny elder. She really is. She's magic, and she knows it. <laughs> I'm here for it. I hope she never loses that. Me neither. I pivoted us a bit in the story to get a better understanding of Augie's need during her crisis last year. If anything, I hope all service providers who hear these stories take heed of our painful experiences moving through their agencies. What you understand as industry standards or practices are in fact harmful for indigenous people impacted by marginalization and oppression. If you could have changed something about your service providers last year, I mean, even looking about like now, say I put this podcast on their desk. <laughs> what do you want them to know? More of us will move through that facility at some point. I mean, unfortunately, you know, but if we have an opportunity to change the way that they serve to token, what do you want them to know? To not di diminish our being and our feeling of being tied to this spot as Nimi Poo people. Our stories go back, you know, since time immemorial. 
we've been here and with the discovery at cooper's ferry of the clovis point arrow or a different one not exactly sure but i know that it was an arrowhead and it was different and it dated at like 16,500 years old and that's a nest per site and we've been here that long when i talked about how desperately i felt like the earth just crying last year you know like australia was on fire and all of the things the salmon runs have been terrible things like that heartbreaking i just felt it i felt all of it and they i don't know like they looked at me like i was crazy (laughs) like i really felt like that they were like oh she's crazy for feeling like she's a part of the land or whatever, but like you can't deny it, you can't. Our history is written in the landscape, the heart of the monster and the sleeping chief and all of our stories and all of our landmarks. We've been here. (laughs) For a long time. I'm a mother. I've given life to three beautiful girls. And if creator decides, they will give life too. If they decide and creator decides, And that's what the earth does. She gives us life. She sustains us. Like, I don't know why it's so outlandish that I would feel a connection to the earth. I almost wonder if the dysfunction of settler colonialism is because they don't have that. They get sick with strange viruses and disease because they don't have the connection. They do stuff like making it illegal to collect rainwater, right? Like, <laughs> who who or why did they think that was a good idea? I just, the further somebody moves away from their land, the sicker they become. And then it becomes easy to violate her. The earth is our mother and she loves us. I read that on a sign when I went to Hawaii. One of the things that stood out about their community there is everything was in reverence to the land, like they don't exist without it. They don't exist without the land or without the ocean. And um, it was always interconnected. Everything had a focus on how we can serve the land, not how the land serves us. And I thought that was phenomenal. And I feel like that's why they have such a strong, a strong indigenous focused community where everything is indigenous led. And uh, there are serious considerations for how development and property and real estate affects the land. I know we have that here, but not like they have it in Hawaii, right? Like not um, not with that level of dedication. We move into exploring our relationships with elders, but I mentioned my emotional toiling about healing our men who choose to use violence. Programs and support groups are few and far between, but at no point in our culture have those men been excluded from community. Our communities are about balance, just like nature is about balance. Men and women have equity in our communities, which is why we have a vested cultural interest in healing them rather than punishing them. Settler colonialism is based on punitive responses to violence. Our communities function and have historically functioned on restoration and rehabilitation. We need our men, even the ones who choose to use violence, as much as they need us. While not a theme of the grant work, it is an equally important discussion. Uh, like part of this work is to how can we be creative in integrating this way of being and this way of knowing into the way that we provide services for victims, the way that we address violence, the way that we mitigate violence, right? 
how do we heal our men who choose to use violence? That's kind of a question that's been mulling on my heart for a while. Being home and protecting our elders is the bedrock of sovereignty. We carry cultural responsibility to serve our people, to serve our elders. We also look to these elders in the time of crisis, COVID-19 in this instance. Being without them was and is emotionally and physically painful. How important are elders to you? How important is that in community building and community safety? Super important. They carry all the knowledge. You have to talk to them to get it. It's a little bit hard to talk about that. One of the things I was feeling um, when we went into the COVID-19 crisis was this fear of losing our elders. I think that's on a lot of our hearts. (laughs) It's so scary. I'm homesick. This is the longest I've been away from home in a long time. And in a crisis like this, the default reaction is to go home, right? Go home where I'm safe and I'm loved and I'm protected. But I'm also out here in the world where I can contract and be asymptomatic and then come home and get everybody sick. And that, like, the guilt of that, even though I haven't gone home, just, like, weighs on me also. The guilt of not going home, but the guilt of not being able to go, right? I just, it's such an interesting conflict. (laughs) I have a responsibility, right? To go home and go run errands and grocery shop for the aunties and for the grandmas. To hunt. To cast. To harvest, right? Like it's Chinook season now. Like we're about to be in steelhead season. Like, and I'm supposed to be there to do the things, (laughs) but I also can't be the one to put them at risk. I was talking with one of my sisters and I don't know. I've been kind of numb to all of the like COVID news. It's like overload or it's underwhelming. I don't know. I remember reading about it when it first broke out, like in China. And and I was thinking like, oh, I'll get it contained. Like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It was naive. (laughs) Once it like got closer and closer to home and then it was here and then doesn't feel over, feels safer for some reason. It's hard to explain. Almost like there's, I guess I didn't realize like how bad it was like on other reservations outside of like the Navajo Nation, only because my auntie is a nurse down there in that area. But other places I didn't realize it was spreading or I don't know. I just didn't realize. <laughs> and I it's because I've been so focused on myself, like just trying to take care of my own mental health. Of all the things that we carry in Indigenous communities, right, trying to work through our own healing and our own trauma, and then a pandemic hits, right? Yeah. And there's a, a level of desperation in trying to take care of ourselves while taking precautions to protect ourselves and our families from an actual viral risk. Yeah, I have four elders in my home and it's super scary. (laughs) The grief I feel is pretty overwhelming because it's just, it's always something, I think, right? It's always something that is keeping us at war, more or less. Violence in our communities, lateral violence, extraction, uh, man camps, and then our missing women and relatives, plus the virus, plus abject poverty, plus health, physical health issues, mental health issues. It's like a snowball. Yeah. Constant cycle. I'm part of a coalition. We support direct service providers. Direct service providers support victims in real time as they need it. But once victims, like once we move victims from crisis to a place of surviving and resilience, 
there isn't these, there aren't any of these follow-up conversations, right? Like, what could we have done better? Were my needs met? Was I seen? The federal government calls us underserved, right? We're an underserved community, like any community of color. But I don't think that any of the survivors circle back in a timely way that they can say, hey, I, this is what I was going through. This is how you responded. And that, like, this is how harmful it was. Even in your own crisis last year, I mean, there, there was no room for you to go back and tell those doctors that what they said to you and the way they treated you was harmful. And uh, I hope in this work that we start to more intentionally make space for that, for survivors and families and our community to speak up. Yeah, my, like the one provider I do see from last year, he actually admitted me to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then I, like I went to Nimipu Health and scheduled my appointment and it turns out that he's the same doctor oh. who provide out there. It's really strange because, I don't know, <laughs> it's strange you say that because the last time I did see that doctor, he was extremely dismissive of, it was very harmful. And I've been struggling with how to, how do I voice that? Where do I take that? Like, I don't know. It's one of those things, like, I'm not a tribal member. <laughs> one of those things like I'll just sit this one out like let someone else I don't know it's a trap you know (laughs) it's a systemic trap you have nowhere to go I feel you and I see you in that sis all we want to do is be well and the systems that are set up that replaced more or less our community-based and indigenous-based systems actually just propagate more harm like if our ways of knowing aren't in their books then they're not valid or valid (laughs) exactly they're not valid and that's why that's where my like therapy journey stopped like oh it was just hard to explain (laughs) over and over like why i felt that way i mean not why i feel tied to the land like it's not a crazy concept like it's not wild (laughs) but i always felt like i was having conversations about Things I shouldn't have had to have conversations about. I shouldn't have had to explain things. And I, it's one of those weird things like where I want to be like, where, where are the people? <laughs> where are my people who respond to things like this? Who do I reach out to like without feeling like a burden? Feeling like a burden. That is distinctly settler colonialism, right? Internalized colonization. We're from a, a community. We, we've suffered together, we heal together, we're resilient together, but somehow on our own mental health journeys, we feel like a burden. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we all struggle, but not together. <laughs> <laughs> we struggle just not together. <laughs> that whole struggling together, surviving together, it makes me wonder, because I believe as an indigenous futurist, like decolonization is what kind of rejuvenates indigenous sovereignty and and wholeness and thriving. But after all of these generations of pain and trauma, it makes me wonder, like, how did we heal in community, right? What did that look like? I've been mulling over that, but what do you, what do you think? I guess what I see for future healing is like the same way we would care for somebody who is grieving. We show up and we take care of things. There is something beautiful about that in our community for sure. Because you're not alone. Like, even if you were alone, like, you're not alone. Everyone has expectations, right? They yeah. clean the house, they cook the food, make up the beds, take care of the kids. 
that always show up in force. Like, there's always like freaking 20 aunties. 20, 25 people. Just rolling 20 aunties deep, and <laughs> all of a sudden there's 50 sandwiches. Like, we're feeding an army. <laughs> big old pot of coffee. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and then the singing starts. I think that's my favorite part. Doing oh. And the laughing. Like, there's really nothing like Indian laughing with other indigenous women. Like, it's so medicine. It's pure magic you just given me like you've inspired <laughs> so much in my brain like how can i get these programs to create circles like that food and laughter no expectations no death <sighs> collection no recording no assessments just show up and laugh yeah it really is that easy it really is it would be so community-based <laughs> And it has to be community-led too, right? I think that might be the hiccup for some of these non-native service providers to, they show up so enthusiastic and energized to like save us and help us, but they never stop to ask. What do you need? What do you need? Yeah, such a simple question. Because here's a list of things that I have. <laughs> do you need any of this? <laughs> you know what I'm terrified about? is that I share these stories from podcasts, from this conversation. I even talk a little bit about our adventures going to Roundup and how we like create our own healing spaces together, how we create our own families, you know, based on kinship. I have learned and observed that it takes Suyapo people, non-natives, to change only in the face of tragedy. Something terrible has to happen before change happens. And that's the most destructive behavior, also very toxic, I have ever, I have ever seen or ever witnessed. And the, <laughs> and the communities that feel that most acutely, right down to our very soul, are indigenous communities, indigenous women. It's because we give life. We all have that ability, we all have that magic, we all have that connection to the land, just being a woman. We are like her. Capable of destruction and of growth. <laughs> Volcanoes, though? <laughs> I'm saying hurricane. <laughs> Yo, right. Earthquakes? <laughs> Damn. Here for it. Destroy so that things can be regrown. Reset. Wildland <laughs> fire. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Burn it down. Summon an asteroid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm here for it. <laughs> Laughter between Indigenous women is medicine. I'm thankful that she and I were able to end our time together in laughter. I encourage you to be innovative and culturally informed in the way that you serve. Ask yourselves as providers, as healthcare professionals, and as educators, are you causing more harm in the way that you serve? Is the way you're serving guided by the unique needs of Indigenous women? And what are you intentionally doing to ensure Indigenous families impacted by violence are well cared for?